Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to episode seven of the From the Earth to the Moon podcast. Uh, Peter is my co-host. I'm Doug. Welcome. Welcome, Doug. And we're going to do episode seven, That's All There Is, directed by John Turtletaub. Uh, This aired April 26, 1998, and was written by Paul McCudden, Eric Bork, and none other than Tom Hanks. This is, I I have to say, this is the best one. Yeah, it's a good one. This is, honestly, like, if I was going to go to the moon, I'd want to go with these guys. If I was going to get a beer, I'd want to have it with these guys. (laughs) Well, these guys are the opposite of what we were discussing in the last episode, right? Right, they like each other. These guys are buds. Yeah, this is like a bromance. This is, I love you, man, goes to the moon. (laughs) They would have had fun doing anything. Like they didn't, you know, they didn't have to go to go to the moon. To have, you know, it's funny because I had the exact same thought while I was watching it that this really highlights, you know, the tensions of the Apollo Eleven crew when you see these guys sort of laughing and yucking it up all the way to the moon and back. And they're super nice to each other. Like clearly, it's it's not just professional. They really like each other and respect each other. And you know, I mean, part of it is that the pressure was off. You know, I mean, Apollo 11, not that they had no pressure, but compared to Apollo 11, it, it was it was already done. So now they could sort of get down to the work, get down to the work and they could also maybe get to enjoy it, you know, or they could think about enjoying it. At least I mean, Apollo 11, there was not even a, a second to think about enjoying anything. It was too momentous. You know, it was too fraught. Right. And you could really understand why Buzz Aldrin said to his wife, Joan, I'd rather be on the next one. Yeah, this episode absolutely highlights that. I mean, it perfectly dovetails with that comment. Because, you know, he would have. He would have rather been on the second one, especially if he was one of these guys. And considering how, how much they liked each other and how much fun they had. And what a team they were. You know, like... It, even, you know, during and after the mission, you know, like they yeah. stayed, they stayed close forever. I think I could be wrong. I think they're all dead. I think the Apollo 12 crew is all dead. Well, Alan Bean yeah. said, you know, when he was talking about it, he said that they, they remained, um, you know, they remained uh, buddies. Right. Alan, um, and yeah, this- Alan Bean just died this year. He did, in, yeah, he did May. die just there. And Pete Conrad died, I think, in a motorcycle accident years ago. He died in 99, yeah, from a motorcycle accident. Jeez. Huh. I didn't know that. And Dick Gordon died in 2017. Um, and these, you know, these guys also all knew each other, too. Like, they knew each other before the space program. Um, right. And I believe that they were all, I, I'm trying to get this right, but I believe they were all on an aircraft carrier together. And they all hmm. knew each other from naval flight aviator circles. Right. And that's why, for example, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but that's why... Conrad reaches out to Bean because he knew him from the Navy and he knew it was someone he could trust. Right. Um, so, so let's back up a little bit. 
So this this episode is ostensibly the story of Apollo 12, but it's almost entirely told from the perspective of Al Bean. Yeah. And, you know, they 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 tell the story in a sort of nonlinear fashion, not quite Pulp Fiction, but nonlinear. And they sort of jump backwards and forwards in time. And, for example, the, the very first thing we see of the Apollo 12 mission is the splashdown when when he gets hit in the head by the camera. Uh, that's our that's our opening uh, salvo of the mission. And it sort of highlights the sort of lighthearted and comical tone that they adopt for the entire episode. And they somehow make Al Bean getting hit in the head, a laceration and being knocked unconscious funny because yeah. it's supposed to be just yet another trouble he had with cameras on the entire mission. Right. He's, he, he's kind of like, he's gorky right after they land because he was literally, he has a concussion basically. Right. Exactly. He doesn't even know it. Right. He's not sure what's going on. Um, and then we cut, we, we pretty much cut from the sort of comical touch of, of splashdown to their November 14th, 1969 launch in the rain. And they joke about how it won't be a big deal for them because it's an all Navy crew. Right. Right. And it turns out to be a big, big problem for them. Right. So, um, most people listening to this podcast probably know the famous story that um, when they launched, they were struck not once but twice by lightning. Um, and, you know, it's funny because if you listen, like, for example, if you go to the Space Rocket History podcast or other places, you can you can listen to the audio of the the lightning strike. And, you know, it's almost word for word what they do in this show. The only thing is the actual uh, event is even faster, like. Conrad calls out all the alarms, and then they get the fix very, very quickly. Uh, in the show, they actually stretch it out a little bit. But but uh, they get hit by lightning about 30 seconds into the launch, and then they get a million warning lights. And, you know, for a second or two, Conrad, who's, whose hand is on the abort handle, has to decide, does he abort the mission? Right. And then no one knows what to do. And there's there's some uh, attention paid to the fact that Jerry Griffin is the flight director. And this is kind of his first big show handling a launch. And, you know, they're looking at a Christmas tree of caution and warning lights on the panel. And then they don't I don't think they name him in this episode, but it's John Aaron, the controller who very famously calls up. Right. S.C.E. to auxiliary. Yeah. Um, which which. No one in mission control basically knows what that is, and no one in the capsule knows what it is except for Bean, and he sort right. of acknowledges that this was his chance to save the mission. So they don't really they don't really go over what actually happened there. So it's worth it's worth just a little bit of discussion. Um, and what happened was when they were when they were struck by lightning, all through the fuel cells went offline. I'm condensing this down a bit, but it's it's worth kind of knowing, you know, it, it's, it's worth knowing what happened, how they could have a million warning lights, and then they could recover so quickly. So they get struck by lightning, the fuel cells, all three of them go offline, and then the command module automatically tripped over to batteries. Um, and they had a 28-volt bus 
that couldn't handle everything. And that's why, for example, they call out that they have AC, but the voltage is low because the batteries are trying to handle all the functions of the three fuel cells, which generated like 70 amps or something, and they just couldn't do it. And the reason Bean gets this huge number of caution and warning lights is because everything is running low on power. But the spacecraft is still flying and everything is working. It's just undervolted, essentially. So John Aaron uh, recognized uh, the panel, sorry, the pattern of uh, caution and warning lights that Conrad was calling down and he was seeing, I believe he's the ECOM. Yeah. Um, and he, they had done a sim on this exact situation and he remembered it from the sim. Sort of like how on Apollo 11, they had had 1201 and 1202 program alarms in SIMS. Right. Um, and they had seen this exact situation. So SDE actually stands for Signal Conditioning Equipment, which basically um, allows them to uh, reset the circuits and reconnect to the fuel cells the proper way and reboot them essentially. So nothing actually failed. So that it makes, you know, it makes Conrad not pulling the abort handle all the more remarkable that he had sort of the presence of mind to recognize that we see bad things, but we're not feeling bad things. And the spacecraft seems to be okay. Uh, so really all they had to do was essentially get off the battery backup power, restart the fuel cells, and then realign the, the platform. Like when, when, when Conrad says we lost the platform, gang, he's talking about the guidance platform. And then there's a scene later on, and they don't really explain it, but you see Dick Gordon realigning the guidance platform once they're in orbit. But uh, if you, if it's worth listening. Like if you're interested in this sort of thing and you're listening to this podcast, it's worth listening to the audio because you can't believe how fast Conrad calls out everything. And just a few seconds later, they call up the SCE to aux. And then uh, John Aaron, who is really young, John Aaron sort of ascended to engineering immortality for recognizing what to do. Yeah, and it's um, super fast. Yeah, and then he, he received the moniker of a steely-eyed missile man for the rest of his life. So if you go to, um, we'll get back to the show in just a second, but if you go to the Smithsonian in D.C., if you go to the Air and Space Museum, there is an Apollo command module control panel. There's, uh, there's obviously, there's a command module, but there's an, an upstairs, there's a command module panel that's just separate. You can walk right up to it and, you know, your nose is just a few inches from the switches and... You know, just probably like a lot of other people who are interested, last time I was there, I looked and I sat in the lunar module pilot side. And if you look right there, right in your face is SCE to auxiliary. So it is right there on the on the right side of the panel. One of like 800 switches. Right. That are manual metal switches designed to be toggled with a fat glove on your finger. Right. And then, you know, then we get to orbit. And before they, you know, before they fire up the S-4B uh, and head out of orbit to the moon. By the way, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Oh, if, if, it no, were, no, if it were a glass cockpit, as is now um, de rigueur, not only in airplanes, pro I would assume spacecraft and your car, uh, they probably would have died because it would <laughs> they would have had to go through 14 submenus. Instead of just reaching up and hitting one switch. It's really hard to, like, control all delete, too, like, when you're, you know, wearing your gloves and everything. Yeah. Um, and, then you know, there's that... I think one of the best scenes in the show is that bit where Bean is looking out the window at the campfires. You know, yeah. you, you know, you know, Gordon and 
uh, Conrad are, are veterans. This is, you know, this is his first flight. Right. And that's um, one of the things that makes this episode really nicely digestible and, and pleasant is that because they sort of tell things with Alan Bean as the navigator, he has, not only does he have kind of an aw shucks kind of nice guy approach uh, and personality, but he, he also is sort he's the novice and the other guys flew on Gemini and he's a novice. So you get to kind of, they use him as a lens to, explain things and he right he's the surrogate for the viewer right um but you know that that you know he he makes the sort of connection to the fact that they're looking down on campfires and they're up there in orbit riding a flame right and it it's sort of the first hint also that you know that conrad and dick gordon are more sort of concrete technical people and bean is looking at the bigger picture you know, right. they're, they're sort of setting the stage for his post-astronaut career, which they don't even really talk about. They they mentioned in passing at the very end, but we'll get to that. Um, and then there's a brief mention that they're going to have trouble with the TV and that he's going to feel bad about it. And right. then they, they sort of cut back to it. Um, so this is what I mean. They sort of jump back and forth in time throughout. Um, and they, they sort of reveal to us early on that Dick Gordon, who is more experienced, never held it against being that he got to walk on the moon and Dick Gordon didn't. Right. Which is an interesting bit, you know, that, you know, look for your first space flight, walking on the moon is a pretty, pretty good deal. Um, and, you know, you could see how maybe it would be easy for someone in the CMP's position to resent that. Yeah. You know, and, you know, Bean said that of his group, um, of his astronaut group, that Dick Gordon, they all knew was the best one. Like he mm -hmm. was the standout and all the member. I think they were in the third group. Um, and and. Everybody thought that of all of them, the big one and the one that was going to do the most famous stuff was Dick Gordon. And that, that's sort of like how how much Bean held him in, in awe, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, they show the sort of hypothetical uh, Al Bean-Dick Gordon parting where he says, I sure hope I see you again. And then he acknowledges that he'd never actually said that. A national would be too macho to actually say that. Right. Um, and then uh, we get just a little bit of information about Surveyor 3, uh, which was an unmanned probe meant to sort of look at the surface and take some images. And the whole reason that they were trying to land next to Surveyor 3 is because, you know, they wanted to show that they could do pinpoint landings. Whereas on Apollo 11, the goal was just to put it down anywhere. On Apollo 12... They were under enormous pressure from the scientific community because there's no point in doing all this prep work for a specific site, geologically and scientifically, if they can't get there. So uh, Conrad, like if you read what Conrad wrote and said about the mission, Conrad was extremely stressed about the landing because he knew that not only did he have to land on the moon, he had to do a pinpoint landing. And it was basically all he cared about. And it's one of the reasons that he was so lighthearted and relaxed on the, on the moon EVAs, because he knew he'd done the hardest part. Like, it was behind him at that point. 
Right. And, you know, the, the background for that is if, especially in the earlier missions where they didn't have um, the buggy yet, um, they could, it was hard to travel long distances on the moon in a spacesuit. Plus it wasn't safe. You know, I mean, more than a couple hundred yards uh, on foot, um, it, it, it's, it's getting to be a very long distance. Well, they walked pretty far. I mean, they they got pretty good at it. Um, yeah. But it was also very tiring. In, it was right. all, it was exhausting to you know they're wearing the Pliss backpack and the suit weighs a ton and even in one six gravity, you know we'll talk about this actually in some of the later episodes. But I mean, these guys were really exerting themselves. Yeah, they they were wearing like almost four hundred pounds of stuff on on Earth gravity. So. You know, what is that like? It's still like 70 like pounds. 70, 80, yeah, 70, 80 pounds, something like moon, that. Which is no small amount. Um, but, uh, you know, and the suit, I'm sure, wasn't very flexible. And you can kind of tell well, by the way they walk. Especially because the suit's under, you know, it's inflated pneumatically right. under pressure. Right, right. But you know? they didn't, you know, that's why they're on, under relatively low pressure, because otherwise they, it would be, they could barely move, probably. Right, and that's what happened. But you're talking about is if the suit pressure gets too high, you can't move. And that's very famously exactly what happened to Alexei Leonov during his very, during the very first human spacewalk, is he, he almost couldn't get back in because his suit was so rigid and so inflated, he couldn't get back in the tunnel, and he had to dangerously let off pressure in the suit to collapse enough that he could get back in. Yeah. So, um, and you know, contrast the way that they do this landing with the Apollo 11 landing, yeah. you know, this is a fun ride. They're having a good time. Conrad's putting it down and Bean is basically just sort of, you know, puffing up Conrad's ego the whole way down so that he yeah. relaxes. He's got it made, looking good the whole way down. He's sort yeah. of cheering him on from the right seat. And if you listen to the Apollo 12 landing, that's exactly what's happening. All that you got it made. For some reason, they like the term babe, and they're always saying, like, you got it, babe, looking good, babe. There's lots of babing <laughs> in the uh, Apollo 12 landing. Um, but that it's it's very obvious, like, when you hear uh, Bean essentially sort of, like, talking Conrad down. Yeah, he's very effusive. He doesn't he keep saying he's perfect, too. <laughs> right, perfect, and then when perfect. they land, you know, there's this what humorous a little... Well, there's also this humorous little bit that when the the contact light comes on, they do shut down, and then the, the command module falls a few feet. Right. <laughs> and they swear. It's sort of a funny scene. And the command module, if you look at the pictures from Apollo 12, you know, they are a little bit on a slope. Right. Uh, so they did come down a little bit on, on, on a slant there, uh, which they show in the show. And, you know, if you look at, for example, the photos of them on the the real Apollo 12 like they're even closer to Surveyor 3 than they make it look like yeah. like you can't believe how close they are they're just a few hundred yards yeah i don't I mean, even think just, it's they, pretty they, impressive i think they were super close i mean they were it was really close yeah it was not along it was basically like right along the partway along the rim of the crater Right, and they're the so they're, surveyor crater. Right. And you can, you know, what's interesting is they, um, uh, if you look at, for example, the lunar reconnaissance orbiter photos of the Apollo 12 landing site, 
Um, I mean, you, you just can't believe how close they got it. You know, they didn't walk across the crater. They walked around the rim. They thought it wasn't safe to walk right. around the crater. Yeah, there's nobody to help them out if anything happens. Right, or if they fell or tripped or who knows. Right. Uh, so if you look at the photos, you can see their footprints and the sort of tracks they made in the in the lunar regal if they... Uh, um, they just walked right around the crater and they were just there, you know, pretty quick, which is, which is damn impressive. Yeah. But we're not going to talk about the photos that demonstrate UFOs or that it was fake. <laughs> no. Oh, that Stanley Kubrick uh, did the whole thing, I think. Right. Um, so, so there's an interesting backstory. So the uh, Conrad goes down the ladder, right? And, uh, Emmett Seaborn, our, our Jules Bergen, Walter Cronkite stand in. You know, he sort of pontificates about how, you know, is is uh, is Conrad going to say something momentous? And he ends up making a joke out of it, essentially saying, he says, whoopee, that's a small, maybe a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me. Talking about how short he was and how the last step down the ladder was a big one for him. Um, so, again, sort of acknowledging that the tension of the landing is behind him. He's literally screwing around. <laughs> right. Nice. So they don't tell the great story though about uh about um why Conrad said that. So um the Italian reporter Oriana Falacci was accompanying the astronauts on uh, I think this was the Apollo 11 round the world tour some press junket and on one of the meetings they had the Apollo 12 guys there and she said to Conrad NASA writes what you say when you land on the moon and conrad said i don't that that's not true i i'm gonna make it up and then she said that's not true and then he told her before they did the the, the flight that this is what he was gonna say and he hmm. bet her five hundred dollars that if he if he said it she would have to pay him five hundred dollars and then when he when he stepped on the moon he said exactly what he told oriana falacci <laughs> and he and he never saw her again, and he never got the five hundred dollars. Oh man! But that's with, where that comes from. With interest, that's you know, that's yeah, some, that's some money now. I know, especially if you're a government employee. Um, <laughs> There's a picture of um, from the lunar reconnaissance orbiter, like of of yeah, you can see the. Um, the site you know if you google it and you can kind of see about they basically put their equipment they they landed sort of at the midpoint between where they put their equipment and surveyor you know they're only right a couple yeah, hundred all, meters the all set the all set's about a hundred meters in the opposite direction and right. they had to set up the all set a little far away because it had an rtg aboard right but yeah they're about 300 meters from surveyor it's pretty impressive RTG, by the way, see the Martian for further. <laughs> right, radioisotope, thermal, thermal electric generator. Thermal generator, yeah. But um, um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, you gotta you gotta hand it to Pete Conrad. It's pretty good. And again, like we talked about, you know, the the guidance computer does most of the work, but you know, the pinpoint part at the end is the is the astronaut. Um, and we see uh, we see Al Bean take his astronaut silver pin uh, and throw it away. Right. Right. He's, you know, he's, I think, I think he said it was six years, right? Because he's part of the third group, which would make him, 
selected in 1963, and this is November of 69. So for six years, you know, he's kind of been a sucker wearing his silver pin, watching everybody else and his uh, astronaut group fly except for him. Right. Right. And he's buried. He's buried off in the Apollo applications program, or as Pete Conrad calls it, Tomorrowland. <laughs> right. They really show him off by himself. Yeah, just sitting in a room with models. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because, ironically, you know, both Conrad and Bean commanded Skylab missions, right? So yeah. Conrad commands uh, Skylab 2, which, ironically, is the first Skylab mission, um, and and Bean commands Skylab 3. Um, and I, I believe... I could be getting this wrong, but I don't think so. Both Conrad and Bean said that they were more proud of their Skylab mission than Apollo 12. Really? Well, they yeah. were up there for a couple months, which at yeah. the time was they, like, I think, ridiculous. Yeah, I think they were up there. I know Bean's Skylab, um, Skylab was really 3 was 58 days. Here, let's, say, let's just look it up. Skylab 2 mission. I think it was like 28 days or something. Yeah, I'm sure it was shorter than 28 Skylab days, 3. 49 minutes, 49 seconds. But, yeah, so they doubled you know, it. Yeah, and then three. the, the, the was last long. one was like 84 days or something. Yeah, um, very long. But, uh, but it's funny because both, you know, Bean and Conrad benefited from Tomorrowland in the end. Right. Um, and then there's a really interesting, you know, th I'm telling you, this is by far and away my favorite episode. They had this they have a scene that they absolutely didn't have to do and nobody would fault them if they didn't do, but they talk about, you know, CC Williams, right. Who was supposed to be the lunar module pilot on Apollo 12, right. right. Who died in a T 38 crash. By the way, the greatest hazard to NASA astronauts. Clearly <laughs> the T 38, the T 38. Yeah, well said. <laughs> You know, they basically, I think, this, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably know more about this than I do, but the, they basically got to fly around on T-38s almost to commute around. They were like cars. Right, because they had to travel so much in the country, basically, not only to give speeches, but to go to the, um, for example, the the companies that were building equipment to, uh, I mean, they were constantly traveling, most of them. So it was part of their job. So instead of taking commercial flights or probably what they should have done is basically had some purpose made, you know, um, you know, Lear jets or something like that, that NASA owned that they would sort of, they could probably fly around and, and use cooperatively. They right. But these were like shit their, hot pilots. Right. So they, <laughs> right. So they gave them their own T 38, you know, which was basically a fighter jet for, for training purposes, but still a fighter. And just, I'm sure not, not sort of made to the same specifications in terms of flight time and demand, you know, other demands that a, that a commercial type aircraft would be. Right. So there are a bunch of them that crashed Four, yeah. yeah. So CC Williams dies in a T 38, Ted Freeman hits a goose. Yeah. Um, and I believe that uh, the, 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 uh, the investigator on the Ted Freeman, goose hit crash is none other than jim lovell is the aircraft investigator by the way right and then the um, two charlie uh, bassett and elliot c right right and and also in their in their class is uh roger chaffee who dies on apollo one so right. that's five people right. died um died not in space 
Right. But even if you, even if you discount Apollo one, there's still more people that died in the T-38 than died in <laughs> oh, Apo- I know. an actual Apollo-based accident. You know? I know. Um, but, you know, it shows that, you know, Bean recognizes that, you know, his his fate turned on a dime. He was going nowhere. Someone else's misfortune led to greatness for him. You know, like he's you can see he's, he's portrayed as being a little just a little bit conflicted about it. Yeah, he's grateful. But, yes, he feels bad. And they that they put a memento, don't they, on the moon about. Uh, um, yeah, they leave um, something. Well, his. there's. There's a, they put C.C. Williams, I believe they put his astronaut pin on the moon. I think that's what they do. Yeah. No, it's his wings. It's not his astronaut his wings, pin. I think right. it's his Navy wings, and they leave them on the moon. By the way, uh, just before we get too far from it, you could do, by the way, an episode of this show on the Skylab 2 mission. Skylab 3 and 4 are more work a day, but Skylab 2 is really interesting because, I don't know if you remember this, but Skylab was crippled in orbit. Like, when they sent it up, like, one of the solar panels didn't deploy, like, the parasol didn't deploy, yeah, like, it didn't have power, that. it was too hot, like, there were all these problems. And um, Conrad, uh, Joe Kerwin, and Paul White. Joe Kerwin was a physician, by the way. Uh, Joe Kerwin, Paul White, and Conrad go up, and they basically resurrect the station. It's actually a really, really cool story where they basically do all these spacewalks and have to sort of save the thing. And if they can't save the thing, the whole Skylab program fails. And they do, and they get three missions out of it. And somehow Skylab, even though it was this hack... Is somehow always to me seemed cooler than than like the International Space Station. I think because it's so or, big, yeah. You know, it's, like it's an it's an it's an S four B essentially. It's gigantic, right? You so know, they had this huge cavernous thing to float around that's in. Super cool. I mean, it's it, like that's what you expect the damn space station to be like. <laughs> Not like a, basically a, a VW bus from nineteen seventy one. Which with is, lots of switches and grass growing in boxes with velcro and then like velcro straps like waving in the air conditioning you know like one <laughs> inch from your head right <laughs> i actually met joe Kerwin once uh and i was down at johnson space center and he came and gave a lecture and our group got to spend like an hour just kind of chatting with him he said it was the best thing ever like you know he didn't think he was ever gonna get to fly in apollo you know, because he was in a later class and, you know, he was a doctor. So they were like, yeah, this guy. Uh, right. But he ended up he ended up getting a great mission and he got EVAs and did everything. He right. got to hand it to him. He didn't get a T-38, but he got to go on Skylab. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, for your only space flight to go up there and do you awesome. know, 28 days, that is totally awesome. Not just that. I mean, just the it, just be. Basically, they could rocket around the inside of Skylab and do stuff that was cool. I mean, it looked oh, like yeah. a movie, like they right? Could, they could run around. They the ran around the belt. Yeah. It looked like the Millennium like, Falcon. They, they tested it because it had those little rectangles. Yeah. And they, uh, and they tested a little jetpack in Skylab. They did all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it, it really, in many ways, it's like, it's like the rock star coolest piece of NASA space equipment ever in some ways you know they they the shuttle was designed to go to skylab and unfortunately the shuttle wasn't ready in time and they had a deorbit skylab but it would have been awful cool if they'd been able to keep skylab going for a couple more missions yep uh, um so they show uh you know a, there's a lot of comedy during the first eva uh you know the, the people on the ground tell them keep the equipment 
uh, free of dust and it's completely covered in filth. <laughs> right. And they just laugh. And then right. his TV camera and his TV camera problems because he basically the thing's bright is broken. He pointed it at the sun. That was his mistake. He pointed it at the yeah. sun and then he burned he out the Viticon. Then he tried to fix it by hammering it, which was yeah, kind of amusing. Actually- Right. And they have that sort of nice in the helmet shot where he's sort of acknowledging like he has no idea what he's doing. And, you know, he had another problem with the camera that they don't even mention. He left some of the unexposed rolls of film of them on the moon. Uh, Oh, undeveloped, Um, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Undeveloped. Yeah. Exposed, but not developed. So he actually left. So some of the, the still photos and they left on the moon, believe it or not. Interesting. Um and then, uh, just to show you how un-PC this was, yeah, this uh, they the had the most famous, funny thing. the famous nudes in there in their cuff checklists, cuff checklist, yeah. which is so awesome, it's almost difficult to describe. Yeah, that is, by the way, of the time, right? I mean, this is truly astronaut Apollo pilot type stuff, right? So they have these little flip book that's like, you know. Um, what's it called laminated uh paper or cardboard right. on their you know on their uh on their wrist or on their forearm and they can refer to that like while they're in the spacesuit running around the moon because there's so much stuff they have to do they can't remember everything necessarily so right. they've got hundreds of things to do in a row in a right. very specific order so they have they have basically reminder cards right so when they get to the moon and they turn the page in the reminder card basically the other astronauts glued like a a little cop picture of a centerfold, <laughs> like a Playboy picture in there, the middle of their checklist on their wrist, and nobody knew about it. It was a joke, so that they right. wouldn't, they, yeah, they wouldn't so see it until surprised. they were uh, right. They wouldn't see it until they were actually running around on the lunar surface, and it worked. And that's exactly what happened. And then they called to each other, "Hey, hey, check, look at this!" And they're <laughs> look, on, look on your, your list, and they they both yuck it up. And it's I'm sure that back in Mission Control, you know, the astronauts had probably told each other about it, and were the other astronauts probably were cracking up well you know the joke goes even further because i don't know if you've seen the pictures like for example if you go to the apollo surface journal you can see them in detail uh they're not just pictures they also have there's jokes on them so for example conrad's we have to get this down to the record or something conrad's is angela dorian miss september 67 with the caption seen any interesting hills and valleys Um, and Reagan Wilson, uh, Reagan Wilson, October 67, with the caption, preferred tether partner, which was like a sort of a reference if they had to share life support. Uh, right. Bean had uh, none other than Cynthia Myers, who went on to all sorts of other fame. Uh, Cynthia Myers, um, and uh, she's December 68, who was, by the way, only 17 years old at the time that she was in Playboy. Nice. Um, and her her caption was, don't forget, describe the protuberances. <laughs> And he also had Leslie Bianchini, January 69, for Survey Her Activity, which is a pun on Surveyor. And believe it or not, Dick Gordon had one. He had one that was in a locker in the command module that he found while uh, Bean and Conrad were on the moon. Wow, they didn't leave him out. That's awesome. Yeah, no, no, no. He had Dee Dee Lind, August 67. (laughs) Yeah, and they they drew a little, like, I'm looking at the one with the survey, her activity. Right. And there's a little cartoon on there, too, like, that that says, you know, Houston won't believe this. You know, like, it's they kind of drew a little stuff on there, too. 
Yeah, so. but if you if, if you're interested and want to see it, and we certainly won't hold it against you for looking because we look, uh, go to the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal website, and they have it right there for you. You can even Google it too. Um, but again, like, you know, this EVA is fun, you know, yeah. like they're having a good time bouncing around, laughing and, you know, making dirty jokes, you know, man, I'm telling you, if you're going to go to the moon, you want to go with three guys who get Corvettes with their uh, posts on the side of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's pretty white. Pretty funny. Um, I talked about uh, in a prior episode that uh, we were going to see in a future episode how crammed they were trying to sleep in the lunar module. And you actually show that here. Right. And Bean is sleeping on the ascent engine cover, um, and Conrad is sleeping in a, essentially a hammock. And they're in, in their, they're in their suits. Like, they don't change out of their suits on the moon. They're in the suits the entire two days they're on the moon. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's interesting, uh, just to sort of, uh, could you imagine sleeping in that thing? I mean, how could you, you know, how could you not just stare out the window? Well, I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how much time rest time they had in between. Were they there? Was it that much? Cause they only, I, they, their total EVA time was eight or nine hours. Yeah. But I think they had, a, I, I'm pretty sure they had a few hours. They had a, here, let's see. So EVA one starts November 19th at 1132. And EVA two starts the twentieth at three fifty four. So they had a they had a couple hours there. They right. had yeah they had a couple hours there uh, to rest and sleep. Right, and their total EVA time was like ten hours or something like that. Yeah, that's pretty good, man. No, seven that's hours pretty... forty five minutes actually. Sorry, yeah, that was their pretty EVA good. Time. Yeah, they had about four hours in the plus. Um, and then. EVA two, right? They go to the surveyor, they walk there, but a lot of emphasis in the show was on the fact that they had planned sort of a stunt or a prank that they wanted to take a photo of the two of them. And they brought a timer with them so that they could set a camera, run around and take a photo of the two of them on the moon so that they wouldn't just be like the Apollo 11 photos, which are of only one astronaut. And that astronaut is virtually always Buzz Aldrin. And they flopped more problems with the camera for Bean. <laughs> Yeah, you can't find the time. You know, he's basically smuggled this little mechanical timer for his Hasselblad because those cameras that you see on the that are little square cameras on the front of the spacesuits that they stuck on there. Um, mm -hmm. Those are Hasselblad uh, cameras with exchangeable backs uh, that contain the film. So they have he brought a little mechanical timer. You can screw it's like a cable release, like a remote release, but uh, you can set it to go off in you know twenty seconds or something, and then uh, they were going to pose. You know, like people do now with your family, right? Set and they the were camera take up, a bunch of ridiculous poses, right? Right, and they they sort of show in this episode what their their plans were, uh, their planet goofy poses in their heads. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, yeah. So it must have been another camera that they were going to stick that in because they couldn't do it with the cameras on their chest. It must have been another one that they had there. Yeah, right, no, you couldn't you couldn't do it with the one on your chest. They must have, you had to do it with a third camera. I think those came off, didn't they? Those were like I don't know. I'd have to look. I think that they the cameras. You know, they had multiple cameras, but they they could move them around because they had to. Um, they were changing film all the time and stuff. Like yeah, so. But you know, if they'd gotten that picture, they might have caught the aliens that were observing them <laughs> while they while they're right. on the surface, right? Or the edge of the set, you know, like in uh, Capricorn One, right? That's true, also. Um, 
And then they go to Surveyor and they take its camera. You know, they in real life, they came down so close to the Surveyor that the descent engine uh, blew dust and particles across the crater that hit the Surveyor. Like, they were literally able to recognize particles on the camera that came from the landing site right. of the Surveyor camera. Like, that's how close they were. And apparently the... The surveyor had kind of a brownish color from the dust and sort of the baking in the sun. And um, when they landed, the the exhaust from the descent engine blew some of the brown color off. And underneath, they could see sort of the pristine white of the original paint. Hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, before you know it, their seven hours and 45 minutes is over. And, uh, you know, they fire up the ascent engine and they're on the way up. Um and then there's a great scene that I don't know if it's true or not. There's a bit where Conrad lets Bean fly the lunar module when they're around the dark side and they're sort of out of view of NASA. Yeah. And he gives them a few minutes to actually pilot the lunar module. But I looked online for about half an hour yesterday, and I don't know if that happened or not. I can't find any any evidence that that did happen. Hmm. But I don't know. I don't know if Bean wrote an autobiography. Bean wrote a lot of children's books. I don't know if he wrote an autobiography, but I don't know. That I'm curious if, if that really happened or not. Because that would be a big thing for them to make up. Hmm. But I don't know. I, you know, I, didn't, I don't know. I, I'd have to see what Conrad wrote. Um, they get back to the lunar module covered in uh, sheets of uh, lunar dust. And in real life, Dick Gordon, just as in the show, did tell them not to come into the command module until they cleaned up and changed out of their suits. Um, and apparently the moon uh, has a really strong odor. Have you read about this? I've heard about it, but uh, I don't know. It smells. Apparently everything smells like it's really deeply burned. Hmm. And they were sent, and Dick Gordon said that when he opened up the hatch, like there was a very, very powerful smell of like ash and soot. And he said that's what the moon dust smelled like. Hmm. Um, and he was worried about all the dust getting into everything because they right. still had to use the command module to get back. And he was worried about the dust, and that's why he made them change. Right. Because um, it's the, most of the, the dust is super, super fine, like powder and scratchy. And it, right. And it gets on everything when they're running around because yeah. they kick it up and it's one sixth G. So every time they kick it, it's not, you know, there's less uh, chance for it to fall back down quickly. And so it just absolutely gets on everything. Yeah. All over their suits that they bring back to the, in, with them in the lunar module. Right. And then, uh, and then apparently we are informed that, uh, uh P Conrad and Al Bean are naked for LM jettison. Yep. <laughs> Conrad manages to make a homosexual joke out of it. <laughs> well, it's like more locker room buddy stuff right. that they actually mean instead of they. Again, it's it's these guys getting along rather than. Oh yeah, you know, they would quote, they wouldn't have been able to, quote, to do that. To quote Father Mulcahy on Mash: Jocularity, jocularity. <laughs> right, there's a lot of poop jokes and. Locker room. Their hats have beanies on them, propeller beanies. Right. Um, they spend a day in lunar orbit, and then they light out for their trans-Earth injection. Um, and then they have uh, just, you know, when they get back down, uh, we show them in quarantine. And there is just a bit of foreshadowing of, of Al Bean's future. They show him drawing 
an astronaut on the moon on a on a yellow legal pad. Right. And they don't they don't actually explicitly acknowledge it, but it's I imagine most listeners to this podcast know that Bean became quite a successful artist as a painter. Right. And I think he said it took him about 10 years to get to the point where he felt that he was a competent painter. And then in his later years, he did quite a, a good business selling paintings that almost exclusively were space scenes of lunar EVAs. That was what he painted. Yeah. Uh, I actually have a signed copy of his book of paintings. I didn't meet him. Uh, my wife's mother met him and got it for me. Uh, but his paintings are pretty good. But he, man, talk about it. You know, he had kind of one thing he wanted to paint. One of the paintings, by the way, it's I think it's called like Impossible Dream or something like that. It's 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 Conrad Bean and Gordon all on the moon, as if what if we could have all gone down together? Right, showing you more bromance. Right. Same. No, exactly. He did something pretty cool, though. You got to give him credit. He did something uh, that not a lot of people would do. I believe he had his, his name tag and his patches from his suit. You know, he doesn't have the suit, but he has his name tag and his patches. And, you know, the, he noticed that the, the patches had moon dust in them. So he cut them up and he ground them into powder and he mixed them in with his paint. So when he sold them, he could say to people, there's moon dust in this painting. Right. I mean, that's pretty cool that he destroyed the patch. You know what I mean? Like yeah. not a lot of people would have done that. Yeah. Um, and then the show ends, uh, with the same credence song, um, that we heard when they landed, right. Going up around the bend. And then when the mission is over, they sort of roar off into their convertibles, you know, chasing each other down the street yep. on the NASA, on NASA grounds, you know, to the, to the strains of credence, you know, just having a great time. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just a very lighthearted and nice episode. And, you know, it, it, it manages to convey all the, the technical details, you know, without them sort of belaboring them like they have in other episodes. You know, they assume the viewer has been paying attention and has watched the prior episodes. And, for example, when they go through the staging cycle and launch, they show them sort of being jerked forward and then backwards in their harnesses. And they don't bother to explain it because you've seen it before, most glaringly in the Apollo 13 movie, but you've seen it before enough that they don't have to bother explaining it. Right. It's a good example, this episode of the so-called left seat, right seat thing. Have you heard that? No. So, you know, when they landed, the command module, um, sorry, the, the mission commander stood on the left. The lunar module pilot stood on the right. And uh, to a man, the mission commanders came back from the moon unchanged. And most of the lunar module pilots came back very different people. And, you know, for example, um, you know, Buzz Aldrin had his breakdown. Bean decides to become a painter. Jim Irwin becomes religious. You know, like like the guys in the right seat. Probably it's it's believed that probably because they didn't have as much of a burden on them and they literally had more time to look out the window and think about things. Right. And the experience could work over them and change them more. So, you know, Al Bean and Pete Conrad are good examples of the left seat, right seat thing. And, and Conrad maintained to his death that going to the moon didn't change anything about him, whereas Bean said the exact opposite. Bean actually decided to be in, uh, to become a painter on the way home from the moon. He basically decided that that was the next phase of his life and he wanted to move into it. And again, he stayed long enough for Skylab, but, you know, like he made that decision when he was up there. It's interesting. Yeah, uh, that's another theme also in Apollo is a number 
that some of the astronauts, if they were so maybe personality with regard to personality, were so inclined, had those moments that changed their course, um, that made them think about bigger issues that we also talked about uh, um, a couple episodes ago as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's uh, it's just interesting to think about how an experience like that, you know, could affect you so dramatically differently just based on your role in the mission, you know, just sitting a few feet further away and having just a little bit of time. I mean, you could imagine that the lunar module pilot was busy as all get out, but he had just enough time to think about it. You know, and to look out the window and not be worried about every last thing that, you know, that weighed on the mission commander. Right. Um, and we don't, we, I think we didn't talk about this, but it's worth mentioning that uh, Dick Gordon very, very much wanted to go to the moon on Apollo 18, uh, which was canceled. He never got his chance. He would have, you know, he would have sat out three right as backed up somebody three right. later and then been mission commander on Apollo 18 and he never got it. And right. I, and uh, Dick Gordon never flew again. So he had a Gemini flight um, and he had an Apollo flight and that's it. Right. So still Gemini 11, Apollo 12, not too shabby. And he had an EVA in, in Gemini 11 as well. So yeah, not too shabby. Apparently, all the astronauts' wives were super hot for Dick Gordon. Apparently, he was the one they thought was good looking. <laughs> and apparently, like some of the astronauts like to keep their wives away from Dick Gordon because they were all hot for him. Like, I read versions <laughs> of that in a couple of places. Uh, he was described by one of the astronauts' wives as having animal magnetism. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't know. Like, you know, Dave Foley, I think. Uh, gets a lot of credit for this one. I mean, he really carries the whole episode. Um, and he's really, really good in this. Playing Alan Bean. Yeah, he, I mean, yeah. he's Alan. He, he he just holds up the whole thing. I mean, he's, he's, he's the narrator. Yep. He's in every scene. He does a really, really good job. Paul McCrane is also great. Um, as, uh, as Conrad. I think most people know McCrane. He played Rocket Romano on ER. And I don't know if you were an ER fan back in the day, but he had, he was a huge part of ER. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also the guy in RoboCop who gets, he falls into the vat of toxic waste and gets dissolved. That's Paul McCrane as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think he gets run over by the SUX 2000. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he does. Uh... After he falls into the vat of toxic waste and the skin is falling off, he gets run over. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. All right, should we wrap there? Anything else on uh, That's All There Is? Nope, that's all there is. <laughs> all right, thanks. See you next time.